So it is November 18th, 2018, Sunday morning. Our message this morning is called Shimming the Foundation. Shimming the Foundation. Uh, you can see we're having some technical difficulties. We're not going to let any of that bother us. Uh, the enemy would like very much for you to not get what we're about to share. So I'm going to ask you with all of your heart to try to open up your very spirit to the Word of God and see if you can glean something new this morning. I've just returned from my seventh trip to Israel. I uh, was there with several other ministries teaching their pastors and elders uh, about the geography and the culture of the land. And the very thought that I would have the opportunity to do that is beyond humbling. Uh, I hope to share with you some videos from them in the next coming weeks about the ways in which it changed their life. Men and women that have been studying the Word of God collectively for many, many decades, and they see the Scripture entirely different than they did before the trip. That is, uh, in itself, a tremendous blessing. Let's open to Luke six forty-eight, and I want to share with you and put before you a revelation that I believe is in line with what's been being preached here while I was gone. When we heard Judah and Nick share about working on the foundation stones to the temple and the need to chisel off things so that they fit correctly. When we heard J.J. Moloch talking about uh, the process of going through the fire, this message will fit perfectly with those messages as well. Are you in Luke 6.48? In Luke 6.48, he is like a man building a house who dug down deep. Come on, somebody say, dug down deep. And laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but it could not shake it because it was well built. It's my goal today that we would dig down deep to the foundational rock of the scripture truth. Now, as Christians, you believe that you already have that. As Christians, you believe that you are planted on the rock, that you were doing quite well. And uh, most of the time, we don't even examine our theology because we inherently believe that our group has got it together. Today, you may have to clear away some trash around your foundation to see what I'm saying. And I want to challenge every person in this room to do that. It's easy after you hear a message, say, oh yeah, I knew that, but it not have shown up anywhere in your life at all. In the One Association Conference, one of the messages we heard from One Light Ministries and Pastor Brent Vincent said that 99.9% of our doctrine can be exactly the same and our life's practice be 100% different. Today, we're going to strike at that. You will definitely have to reconsider your normative conclusions based on nominal Christianity. What we hear all around us all of the time determines what we think about at times. What we hear all around us all of the time influences how you read this word. And mostly, large in part, we have been taught to emphasize the newer testament to the detriment of the older testament. America has put its center, itself in the center of the world map, itself in the center of the biblical story, 
And Christianity has put each individual as the goal of God's salvation. And this is, this is a mistake, and we're going to address that today. Let's look at Luke 14. When you get to Luke 14, say, I'm there. In verse 28, we are going to turn this story slightly. In other words, we're going to look at it through a little different perspective today. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation, say foundation, and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Now, I want to ask you, when you read that, the most normal thing in the world to do is that this causes you to count the cost. If I lay a foundation and if I can't finish what I started, then I become the subject of ridicule. Am I right? That's, that's how I've read it my whole life. This morning I looked at it slightly differently. What if God laid a foundation and that foundation is fundamentally clear? It's absolutely crystal clear. And then God has to change plans, change building materials, change building structure, or renovate his foundation, would not the whole world ridicule God for not being able to complete what he started? What is at stake today is God's character. Now, his character is not in jeopardy. When I say his character's at stake, I mean our view of his character. What you will be faced with as we go through this message is not just a theological exercise. It will also determine how you view trials and impossible situations in your own life. How we view the biblical plan determines how we react to our daily stimuli. If he begins a good work, will he bring it to completion? If he promises something, will he deliver it? You'll be faced with a challenge today. You can either reinvent God's promise to fit your circumstance, or you can resurrect God's promise and enjoy his life. I am in the camp that says no more reinventing God's promises, no more rewording them, no more working them to uh, a torturous outcome. You know, if you torture data, it will confess to anything. We're going to look at this Bible as a narrative, as a story from beginning to end, and ask ourselves what the subject of the story is. 1 Corinthians 3.10 says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. How many of you believe Paul was an expert builder? And someone else is building on it. Samed, it's a team effort. But each one should be careful how he builds. Do you hear that admonition, that warning? There is only one foundation. We have to be careful the way in which we build. Verse 11, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. That sounds so simple. The foundation is Jesus. The thing is, 
is to say that the foundation is Jesus is of course true. But you have to understand more about Jesus than most people do to understand what that means. You end up saying words that everybody agrees with, but you have no idea what the author meant by it when he says Jesus is the foundation. How we define Jesus is in direct proportion to how you understand the foundational truth of the Scripture. Today, we're going to look at the foundational truth of the Scripture. It will change your understanding of Jesus and vice versa. Has anybody in here ever hung a window? How about installed a door? Put in cabinets? Some of you that have industrial backgrounds, you ever put in a motor or an industrial pump? You know the importance of using shims. Shims are what you use to adjust the level of your starting place. Without a shim, your whole house, your whole project is off base. Your window is in there well enough, but uh, it's crooked. Everything that you view through it will be crooked because of it. Your door still works, maybe. It opens, it closes, but something about it is... How about this word, Charlie? Cattywampus. It's plum sum. We're going to cover the biblical story as a narrative rather than a legal book of precedence assembled by an attorney. When we dissect the word of God, it leads to a distorted emphasis. Listen to me. When you cut up the word of God into sections, when you get into it with a scalpel and you dissect it, you can end up with an incorrect emphasis, incorrect conclusions. You can get into blatant error. You can focus on a detail so much that you have missed everything that is of importance because of your focus on one detail. This is very common in Christianity. It's where most of our out-of-balance doctrines come from. It's so easy to believe something until you experience the opposite. Now, what I'm saying is a brand-new Christian can easily come to the conclusion that God wants to heal every person in the world every time they meet that person. That's an easy conclusion to come to because Jesus never failed to heal somebody when he encountered them. But what you are missing that are between those lines are all of the people that he encountered that he didn't heal. We're missing that. That is one example of a way that you get hyper-focused on a facet and you miss the beauty of the whole stone. It is very easy to dissect God's word and turn it into an A plus B equals C formula and you miss the beautiful variable of God's sovereignty that forces you into relationship with him to know his will in each situation so that you don't have a predetermined outcome for every situation you enter into. Now, I've just said a lot. I'm going to work to see if I can help you understand that. Rather than dissecting the word of God today, I want to connect the word of God today. I think that would be a better use of our time. Dissection is breaking something into all of its various pieces and studying the individual pieces. I would rather look at the Word of God holistically today. 
so that you see how the pieces connect to one another. Because it's my experience that Christians have a myopic view of various subjects because they don't understand the totality of the Word of God. And so you show them seven scriptures in a row about the totality of the Word of God, and they end up repeating the very first scripture that they said to you the first time, showing they have no understanding of what you just said, and they will not focus on anything else. By they, I mean you. So today I'm challenging you to look at the Word of God as a narrative. When you are asked, hey, what is Genesis about? The natural response, if you're on who wants to be a millionaire, you phone your friend and he says, Genesis is about creation. Isn't that what you would have said? Now, you're nervous to say yes out loud because I've already hinted at the fact that it's wrong. How many times, though, would you have been comfortable with a statement from any pulpit in America, Genesis is about the creation of the world? Since you're scared to speak in church, raise your hand if you believe that most people in nominal Christianity would agree with that statement. Well, that looks like 100%. The rest of you find the power of speech and talk to me today. Lord, heal them. Loose their tongues. If they have refused to name their children John, then unstick the tongue from the top of the mouth. This is the result of being told what Genesis is about before you ever read Genesis. And this is how we enter into our problem. For most passages in the scripture, we are told what they are about before we encounter them ourselves. We start from the end of the book already knowing what it is about. And then we superimpose our conclusions on all the rest of the book that we haven't read yet. Now imagine that you did that with Moby Dick. Imagine that you did that with Grapes of Wrath. Imagine that you did that with Old Man and the Sea. Would you not have a distorted outcome and have missed the journey? This is what is happening all around us. We have boiled Christianity down to a bumper sticker Christian that says, I want to believe on Jesus, die and go to heaven. And actually the Bible story has absolutely nothing to do with that. Never will you find even that phraseology. In the Bible. It was not the hope of ancient Israel. It was not the hope of Israel in the first century. It was not the hope of Jewish Christians. It was not the hope of Gentile Christians who came into a Jewish faith. It never was the hope of Christianity. The resurrection of the dead here on earth was the hope of Israel and the hope of Christianity. But that is not our subject today. It's simply an example of being told what it is about before you read it. And so you draw Wrong conclusions. An honest survey of Genesis by a first-time encounter would never come to the conclusion that the 50 chapters of Genesis are about the creation of the world. We have filled the foundation with rubble, dirt, theological trash that must be cleared away so that we can see the true foundation of God and of the Scriptures. Do you want to clear it away? Somebody yell out, clear it away. Now say, clear it away in me. You must not think this is someone else's problem. I'm not preaching to other people today. I'm preaching to you. I did this exact same thing to each of the pastors that I've taken to Israel. And you know what? We find out we all have some theological rubble in our lives. We have been told things that we've accepted. And it has shaped our view of the scripture in a way that God never intended. Today, we're going to take a stab at that. We're going to start with a seven-step summary. So how many steps? 
a seven-step summary of the first nine chapters of Genesis. This is, uh, hopefully we'll have, be able to put it on a screen. Let's go to slide one. This is Genesis 1-1 through 1-2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We're all familiar with this passage. Very often people don't go any further than this. What you miss though is that is not the point of Genesis 1. Not at all. In fact, Genesis 1 crescendos with something. It doesn't just finish with the origin and ordering of the heavens and the earth, but more accurately, it introduces man and his purpose. That is the point of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 introduces man as the lead role in the story that is about to be told. And it introduces man's purpose. Let's go to Genesis 2. In Genesis 2.18, we have the co-star. The Lord God said it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Genesis 2 introduces us to the woman who would co-star in the story and would be an indispensable helpmate. A cherished, indispensable helpmate. He cannot do it without her. Come on, husbands, you missed a good chance to say amen. How many of you have been married less than five years? Stand up if you've been married less than five years. Yell amen at the top of your lungs. Now sit down, put your arm around your indispensable helpmate. Never, ever take her for granted again. You cannot complete the will of God without her. And if you are treating her like a trophy, then you're a dumb jock. She's not a trophy. She's not there as a beautiful item to accent your glory. She is there as an indispensable, cherished helpmate, the only way in which you will ever finish God's story. Ladies, say amen. amen. Some lady in the house, tell me I'm doing a good job. Now I'm preaching better than you're talking. Some lady in the house, let me know I did a good job. There you go, husbands. You need your wives. By the time we get to Genesis 3... We're introduced to something. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Genesis 3 introduces us to the struggle, the fall, and the hope of mankind. In the first three chapters, we have a star, a co-star, and then the struggle begins. Somebody say, pound the struggle is real. Real. I've never been on Twitter. I'll never be on Twitter. Hashtag. That's not a pound. So I'm an old guy. Yeah. I just got rid of my rotary phone. Let's move to our fourth step in the summary. This is Genesis 4. This is about where people tend to lose their way. Genesis 4 covers in detail the murder of Abel by Cain. What we're seeing in Genesis 4 is an illustration of the result of mankind's departure from his purpose. When we see that in Genesis 3 there's a break between God and man, there becomes a struggle in Genesis 4, the result is murder. What Genesis 4, the entire chapter is about, is actually not the murder of Cain. It's about the continual slide in deterioration. And we have a translation problem that kills us here. I want to show you this on the next slide. It will help you. We're still on point four. 
It says, and Seth also to him a son was born and named him Enosh. Then it became common to call by the name of the Lord. The end of the fourth chapter in most of our Bible says men began to call on the name of the Lord. And so we read Enosh as a revivalist. We see that the chapter starts in murder, but it ends in revival. That is not true. That is a terrible misunderstanding. Thank God for the Hebrew language. Here you see Rashi's commentary on it. Then it became common is an expression of profaneness. Common in the sense that people were attaching God's name to idols. They were attaching God's name to whatever they wanted to do. They were becoming gods themselves. Now, consider the flow of this narrative. Does it make sense to you? That we start with murder, we end in redemption as we would have read it, and then we go immediately into a flood that kills everybody on earth after the greatest revival recorded in scripture. No. You wouldn't have had to have the flood in Genesis 6 if we didn't have the profaning of God's name in chapter 4. In chapter 4, what we have found out is that man who was the star, woman who was the co-star, have entered into a struggle, which was the third chapter, and the struggle is not going well. In fact, in the first generation after Adam and Eve, there is murder, and that murder multiplies to the point that men are using God's name about any common thing. Tell me, is that already different for some of you? It's different for Justin, the rest of you. Not different, all of you. Would somebody like to teach on the Hebrew construction of this phrase and show us why it's profane rather than proclaim? Okay, it's different. I just wanted to know. Are you all all right today? Do I, I need to speak in another language with maybe other tongues and you can interpret. Thank you, brother. That's the father of uh, Moshe Issachar right there. Chapter 4 is not about revival. It's about regression. It's about the process that leads God to destroy the entire world. That's an incredible thing, isn't it? That in the first five or six chapters of the Bible, we get to the place where the world has to be destroyed. Somebody say that's, that's the cliff notes. That's the overview. Step five. You ready for our fifth step? Step five is a genealogical record. Now imagine that you were writing, Okay. Why on earth would an author introduce a genealogical record in the fifth chapter? Why would he have introduced a man, introduced a woman, introduced a struggle, and shown you the extent of the struggle, and now he introduces a genealogical record? We skip over these because we don't see them as important. We skip over them because we have missed the point of the story. Our Sunday school answer is, oh, it's all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus, but you have no idea how we got Jesus and what Jesus is actually going to do and what what must be done here on earth before Jesus completes his work because we got saved in a scripture-light environment. Understanding the first 11 chapters of the Bible will change your understanding of the rest of the Bible, but that's not how we tend to encounter it. You learn the Roman road to salvation. You learn John 3.16. You learn that if any man was in Christ, he was a new creation. You were excited about that. And then you encounter the rest of the Bible. So you misunderstand it. You don't know that that's the culmination of something. You see it as the origination of everything. And that's a problem. 
It makes you the center of the gospel. And it ignores thousands of years of history that have built to this point. And you may not even understand the point you think you do because of the way you've arrived at it. In Hebrew, when you give this genealogical record, you need to understand it doesn't say this is the account of. It says here are the generations of. Here is the family line of. The author is taking the time to develop the story because it's not a meaningless detail. It's very germane to his point. In fact, you're going to see it is the point. We are not going to pick up the story with any random person. We're going to show a clear line from Adam to Noah. Let's put that on the screen. These are... I can't read them on the screen. There are ten generations here. Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Those ten generations are of a specific line of people that are on the planet. That ignores Cain's line. That ignores other sons and daughters that are on the planet that are listed in Genesis 4. It's a specific line of people. And there's a reason that it's a specific line of people. This Bible is the story of a specific line of people. Now, I'm one of those guys that looks at every detail in the word. I can't ever get enough. I have tended to teach this chapter as a kind of holy crypto analysis, like code breaking, like a cipher. I defined each one of the names. I found out that Seth meant granted, appointed, compensated. Enosh meant mortal. And so on and so forth. And when you list the ten names, you can see on the screen. Man was granted or appointed mortality. The possessor or purchaser, the praised of God, the blessed of God, is shining forth and coming down, descending, initiating teaching, dedicating. His death brings or sends a strong, vigorous, powerful comfort or rest. And you hear a beautiful salvation story in it. Now, when I do that in churches and they've never heard it, they, they love that. Oh, my gosh, those genealogies, they mean something. That was never the point of the genealogy. The point of the genealogy is not that I can wow you with the definitions. It's that God is tracing out of all the people on the planet one specific family line. That's important. You can't redefine that. You can't make it something else. The first genealogical record ever given is given to narrow us to a single human being on the earth and his family because that is the point of the story. The author clearly wants us to know how the story of Noah develops. That takes us to Genesis 6, which is our sixth step in the summary. Genesis 6 illustrates God's impending judgment on mankind, but his favor on one specific family. Genesis 6, 5 through 8 details that God is going to flood the earth because he's grieved. But verse 8 says, but Noah, somebody say, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We needed to know how we got from the promises that were given to Eve and to Adam to Noah, because Noah is the only family line on the planet that is going to be saved. Did you hear that? The only family on the planet that was going to be saved. In other words, salvation is found in no family other than Noah's. Are you hearing that? 
That is an important pattern that the scripture never deviates from. But there is a mystery that was revealed to an apostle later and we will get to that. Moving to our seventh step in the summary. Genesis 7, 8, and 9 could be summarized as that judgment that came, but that that is not the point. When we read about the flood, we read about the judgment and we see that. Those chapters certainly take us through the judgment, but I would argue that the point is in Genesis 9, 26. Are you there? It's also on your screen. (laughs) Blessed be the Lord. The God of, blessed be the Lord, the God of, you know, you need to consider that. The God of Shem. Why not the God of Ham? Why not the God of Japheth? In fact, the phrase, the God of, has never appeared before in Scripture. The first time God gets a adjective, if you will, he becomes a part of a, a phrase that helps clarify which God we're talking about is Shem. Now, Shem's got two brothers. He's not called their God. He's called the God of Shem. These nine chapters summarize in seven steps, summarized in seven steps can be viewed of a 2,000 year span that funnel you to one point that becomes apparent in Genesis 9.26. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. And may Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. We have a prescription for all mankind there. While salvation was found in no family other than Noah's, within Noah's family, there would be a specific line that salvation for everybody else would depend upon. It would not be through Japheth. It would not be through Ham. The only way that Japheth can be saved is to enter into Shem because God has now narrowed the promise to Shem. Listen, if we're talking about a narrative, how important would it be then to identify this family? If you could only be saved through one family on the earth, you would want to know that you knew who that family was. Understand something. The Bible then starts... With the creation of a man, it moves to the destruction of the world and a new beginning where people are only saved by the God of Shem. That's an incredible uh, oversight by most people. How long have you been reading the word and never realized that the first time God's name becomes incredibly specific in the text is the God of Shem? If he was the God of Shem, is he now the God of someone else? Did God change? First and foremost, the first understanding you must have of Adonai is that he is the God of Shem. Because that's where the story funnels you and leads you. I want to recap those seven things for you in this next slide. Chapter 1, all about man and his purpose. Chapter 2, about woman, the indispensable co-star of the story. Chapter 3, about the fall and the, and the struggle. Chapter 4, the results in the progression of the fall. Chapter 5, the family line of the heroes of the story. The what of the story? Heroes, heroes of the story. You cannot make someone else the hero of this story. 
Jesus is a hero of the story in the Bible only because he comes through Shem. If he came through Ham, he would not be the hero. If he came through Japheth, he would not be the hero. When we say Jesus is the foundation, we are missing something. He is only the foundation because he's in line with the previous promises. Does that make sense to you? Six is about the judgment. The seventh summary is that mankind can only be saved with Shem. There is salvation in no other name except Shem. Are you recognizing those phrases? That phrase, God of, 421 times in the Bible. 384 verses in the Bible. He is sometimes called the God of heaven. Sometimes he's called the God of earth. That's less than 0.01% of the time. 99 times out of every 100 times the phrase God of shows up. It's the God of Shem, the God of Abraham who comes from Shem, the God of Isaac who comes from Abraham, the God of Jacob who comes from all of the predecessors, or the God of Israel. This Bible story identifies the line of people through whom salvation would come, who would define what it is to be in relationship with God for all the rest of mankind. And nobody else on the planet could be saved except to come into their tent. Now, we are not yet to the 10th chapter of the Bible. And that would be the foundation that you would have to start with before you considered anything else. And already your minds are jumping to, but wait a minute, in Messiah, isn't all of that gone? Aren't we all the same anyway? And I, aren't, there's no difference between barbarian and Scythian. You have turned the telescope around the wrong way and you are looking through the wrong lens. So your view is distorted. The later statement is exactly that. It is a later statement in addition to this one that does not replace it. It only clarifies it. Somebody say amen. Amen. I'm going to try to get you thinking here for a minute. We tend to view Adonai as our God and also the God of the Jews. That's because we've seriously missed the point. We've missed the author's intent. We've missed the flow of the story. And nobody reading this book as a novel in in a, a college environment could come to that conclusion. You almost wish we had a secular analysis of it. Because your analysis is already skewed by what you were told you must believe before you ever read it. Nine chapters of Genesis are funneling us to one conclusion. Adonai is first and foremost the God of Shem. And all mankind must come into Shem's tent or you can have no relationship with God. That's in the first nine chapters. What do you think the rest of the Bible is about? That process. Period. The the rest of the Bible story is about mankind coming into the tent of Shem. He's not called the God of Ham. He's not the God of Japheth. He's called only the God of Shem. Pick up with me in Genesis 10.1. I do want to clarify occasionally you'll see he's the God of the Edomites. But we're not talking about Adonai. We're talking about Molech. When the gods of the other people groups are named, they're idols. Now, 
I don't want to be so elementary that I keep having to go back and clarify something. For those of you that are already uh, troubled in your spirit about what I'm saying, trust me, that's not the Holy Spirit that is causing you trouble. It's the rubble around your foundation. Uh, I want you to get something. I am not saying that he's not the God over the whole creation. I'm saying that's not how he identified himself. That's not the title by which he prefers to be called. That's not how he wanted to make himself known. That is not how the author emphasizes him in the story. We have de-emphasized the people. We have de-emphasized the place in which it must take place. And we have misunderstood the plan. And because of that, we have created a religion that is barely recognizable to the people that it's supposed to complete. Are you in Genesis 10.1? In Genesis 10.1, this is the account of... That's interesting. Shem's not the oldest, but he's listed first. It says, this is the account. Of course, in Hebrew, that's this is the generations of Shem. Ham and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. So when you read Genesis chapter 10, who would you expect to encounter first as we talk about the nations that come from these boys? But you don't encounter Shem first. In fact, you encounter Japheth, then Ham, and we close with Shem. Why would the author do that? Why would he tell you, I'm going to tell you about Shem, and then end up telling you about Japheth, Ham, and finish with Shem? Because Shem was the point. He's telling you, I'm going to tell you about every nation in the world, but I'm going to, I, I, I first want to tell you about Shem, and I last want to mention Shem. It is the point of the author to say, hey, I'll tell you where every person on the planet came from, but what you need to pay attention to is where did Shem come from? See, in Genesis 10.1, he says it's the account of Shem. Then we go through Japheth's descendants. We go through... Ham's descendants, and we finish with Shem's descendants. Do you know why? The author is emphasizing the conclusion that he wants you to come to, not the one that a bumper sticker told you to come to. Out of all of mankind, you should be watching one people group, Shem. In chapter 10, we gain an understanding of where every person in the world today originates from, but that is not the point. I have called this the table of nations for years, but it really should be called the scarlet thread of Shem. It's not about all of the nations. It's about Shem. This is the account. This is the generations of Shem. Notice verse 1, he listed Shem first, but the body of the chapter ends With Shem. Shem is introduced as the point and the chapter closes with Shem as the point. I want to pick up in Genesis 11 for you. Are you beginning to understand this as a story? God created a man. He created a woman. There was a fall. The result of those fall were murderous and God's name was profaned. In that time period, God picked one family that he would bless and all the rest of the world grieved him. He judged the whole world and saved only one family. Within that family, which had three parts, just like every man on earth has three parts, he would be the God of Shem and all the rest of man would have to be blessed through Shem. That is the narrative so far. So in Genesis 11, actually, let me show you a a picture here. All mankind receive a promise in the sense that Adam and Eve are the father of us all. But by the time we get to the flood, that whole promise to all of mankind has been narrowed down to only Shem. 
Now Shem's offspring are going to grow. And as Shem's offspring grow, and you see that he has 26 children come from Shem, you have to figure out within Shem's offspring, where does it go? Does that make sense? It starts off broad. It narrows down to Shem. And then from Shem, it begins to grow wide again. Do you understand the graphic? Are you off on another Bible study somewhere? Did I lose you somewhere? Because trust me, this is a linear message. And if you check out for one point, you won't understand the rest. And you'll be exactly like you were when you walked in this room. Genesis 11. From all of Shem's descendants, verse 31 identifies something. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years And he died in Haran. Out of all of mankind, Shem was identified. Out of all of Shem's descendants, the story narrows to Abraham. Eleven chapters build to exactly one point. Abraham, the descendant of Shem, is the specific father of salvation for the world. Now, do you find it interesting that whether we're talking about Judaism... Christianity, or that heretical sect of pedophile prophet-following, satanic book-holding people called Muslims all claim Abraham as our father? Do you find that interesting? See, it's almost as if the world at large, through a kind of tribal knowledge, has understood the first 11 chapters of the Bible better than the church today. Everything that we want to know Everything that we must understand, identify with, and become a part of has been narrowed to Abraham's family. Let's show that slide, Pastor. Shem's offspring, as wide as they were, have been narrowed down to Abraham. Now, what's going to happen with Abraham's offspring? They're going to widen out again. Many times in the Bible, the promise looks very wide to everyone. And then it always focuses its attention back down to the only one. That's because there is a relationship between that narrow promise and that broad promise. There is no hope in the broad promise if it's not true in the narrow promise. In other words, if we were wrong about Abraham, then as we're hoping for all of Abraham's offspring, there's no hope for them. If we narrow it down, if we go back before that, if there's hope for all mankind, but there's no hope for Shem, the narrow point, then we're wrong about all mankind. See, the broad promises in the scripture that you cling to, that you think are the point of the scripture, they are completely and totally dependent on the narrow promises to a specific family line. One that a genealogical record identifies, not once or twice, but all over the Bible. 24 times in the Bible, the tribes of Israel are listed in different orders, just to see if you're watching. (laughs) In Genesis chapter 11, the specific family, Abraham's family, was identified. In Genesis 12, watch what happens. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give... This 
land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. I want you to get something. Abraham left, according to Genesis 12, 1, not knowing where he was going to go. That's amazing. And we act like he never knew where he was going to go. He just wandered his whole life and he didn't understand. You're missing the point. The 11th chapter closes with out of all Shem's descendants, it's Abraham that I'm going to deal with and the promise is going to come from. Abraham has to leave not knowing where he's going, but as soon as he enters Israel from the northern side and begins to work his way south, God stops him and says, this is the land. Now, it was not North America. The Mormons were wrong. It, uh, it, it, it is not, um, the, the United Kingdom. Uh, many Bible scholars, uh, have been wrong. Uh, it was Israel. So by the 12th chapter of the Bible, we have a specific people, Abraham's descendants. We have a specific place, Israel. Period. The rest of the Bible story cannot change those specific people, cannot change that specific place, no matter how inclusive you think Christ is. It cannot change that. We want to watch this develop because remember, from the standpoint of 66 books in the Bible, we have only reached 12 chapters. But the first 12 chapters set the tone for every other chapter that you read and there is no chapter that sets aside a previous chapter there is no reason to give genealogical records no reason to give geographical boundaries no reason to keep identifying yourself with a specific family line if they are not the hero in the point of the story so that takes us to genesis 13 genesis 13 is life changing I hope you're able to follow. If you are, then you'll be blessed. If you're not, then you'll have to get the tape and break it up into pieces. Genesis 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Lift your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you. That tends to be what we get from this passage. And it's because we're not tuned in to what the author is trying to show you. We have read this and dissected it. We've made this the story of Lot. We've made this how Sodom and Gomorrah came into being. We've looked at this through the wrong lens. In light of what I'm telling you of the story funneling, do you know what we found? We have our main character, Abraham's family. We have the location that it's going to occur in, Israel. And now in the 13th chapter, he says, I will give to you and, somebody say and, To your offspring forever. Forever. See, that changes things. For Abraham to receive it with his offspring and receive it forever, we are talking about something eternal. The problem that entered mankind was death. The solution to death would come through Abraham's people in a specific place and the plan to do it would have to involve a resurrection of the dead of those people in that place. Now you can go on and read this. I just came from this area. I was standing in Hebron. In Hebron, Abraham is buried. Isaac is buried. Jacob is buried. Sarah is buried. Uh, Rebecca is buried. Leah is buried. The only piece of earth that Abraham bought in his entire life is right here. Do you know why? Abraham understood that his family line were the carriers of salvation. 
he understood that the place that it would occur in was the land that he was standing on, so he did not buy a grave for his wife. He purchased the site of her resurrection for all future generations. Abraham's faith was in the resurrection of the dead. So when we say Jesus is the foundation, we're missing something. Yes, he is the foundation. But Abraham was not following Jesus. Jesus is an answer to the faith of Abraham. I'm not exalting Abraham above Jesus. Don't misunderstand me. What I'm telling you is that the reason that Jesus is the foundation is he's the same faith as Abraham, which is the foundation that comes first. Now, I stood in the cave of Machpelah, and I noticed that it's in contention from Jews, in contention from Christians, and in contention from Muslims. Why do you think that is? Because Satan better understands the plan of God than the people of God. He does not want people to be able to walk up to that cave and see what the foundation of our faith is about. This specific plan is now identified, a resurrection from the dead in the land. Hebron is the burial place of the patriarchs. The Bible brings us to the foundational revelation that victory over death would come through Shem, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. And their lasting monument on earth, the only thing that Abraham owned, was the cave of Machpelah. As a testimony, all of the promises that were given specifically to his descendants... Hinged on the resurrection of the dead in the land of Israel. Genesis is not about the creation of the world, friends. It's about the creation of the nation of God, Israel. Upon which the whole world's hopes rest. See, we tend to view Genesis 1 about the creation of the world because we think the Bible is our story. It's not our story. The Bible story is about the descendants of Shem through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the main cast. They are the main story. Almost every other character introduced, by the way, is a villain. That's who your ancestors were. Villains. That's who my ancestors I'm a pork-eating Gentile. We were the villains of the story, not the heroes of the story. And through some magic trick of theology, we've made ourselves the hero of the story, and they're now the villains. See, that happens when you start at the crucifixion in your understanding and you work backwards. You know, you think that Israel killed Jesus and therefore Israel in some way bears this unique responsibility. Every year Israel killed the Passover lamb. Did that help them or hurt them? The whole point was that it was killed by Israel for Israel. Jesus was killed by Israel for Israel. He's their atoning sacrifice before he can ever be your atoning sacrifice. There is a slide that I'd like to show you. Uh, I hope to. Okay. Abraham's offspring, because I'm not going to walk you through each chapter of Genesis, I want to walk it through like this. Abraham's offspring gets wider. Abraham has Isaac and Jacob, but it narrows to Jacob. Jacob then has offspring, and those offspring widen. And um, out of Jacob's 12 sons, we end up with Judah. See, every time the promise starts to get wide, God narrows it back down to a specific person. Genesis 49.10 promises Messiah comes through Judah. Judah's offspring turn into a whole nation. And so God narrows it down to David. David's descendants, his sons, he has many of them, more than ten. So God narrows it down 
to Solomon. Solomon's offspring, those who come after him, the kings of Israel, they become many. So God narrows it down to Jesus. And that's where we think that this ends. Oh, amen. Jesus has come. You misunderstand something. That's not the end of the story. In fact, that's the entrance of the hero of the story, but it does not finish the foundation that God said. I'm going to prove that to you because that's kind of a mouthful. In Jesus, we see all believers, right? There are a few of you that are actually descendant from Jacob in this room, but the rest of you, uh, pork eating Gentiles. Okay. Mutts, whatever it is that we are. You think we have racial problems? There's only one division in all of the races of human beings. There is Shem's line who is blessed and then all the rest of us. So let's, let's just get in there, okay? Um, from Jesus, this promise starts to widen out again. And we start to see salvation all over the world. And so it's easy to forget like every other time. No, this promise always narrows. What you're going to see in the rest of this message is that all believers will again focus back down to the one nation that this started with, Israel. The point of the broad promise to all believers is so that his original promise to Israel would still stand. I want to prove that to you. Let's go to what you think of as the newer covenant, the Brit Hadashah. Anybody love the New Testament in this room? How many of you are like, oh, pastor, if you could just get to the New Testament. Let me show you where the New Testament starts. It's a book called Jeremiah, chapter 31 and verse 23. What you think is a new covenant, you have misunderstood your whole life. And it's because you read over terms that are of a specific family line proven by genealogical records of a specific place on the earth with physical boundaries and you insert your own name in the place of theirs. Jeremiah 31. Now we're 53 minutes into a message and we're not halfway done. Do you want to know the rest of the story or do you want to be stuck in element? Okay. Jeremiah 31 verse 23. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of... Now, if we're going to introduce the new covenant, why is he not the God of all mankind? Why not the God of you mutt Gentiles? Why not the God of North America, the God of South America, the God of the Antarctic? I mean, we can even throw in the Australians if you want. Why Why not? Because that's not who the promise was made to. That's not who the relationship was identified with. That is not the foundation. The foundation is specifically Israel, which, by the way, is a people, is a place, and hear me, is the plan. Well, how is Israel the plan? Because their very name means prince with God, and the plan is not done till the nation and the place are a prince with God. Okay, The Bible is the story of a specific people, a specific place, and a specific plan. And the answer to all three questions is Israel. Israel is the people. Israel is the place. And becoming a prince with God is the plan. I feel like that's better than you think it is, but it's okay. This is what the Lord Almighty says, the God of Israel. When I bring them back from captivity... The people in the land of Judah and in its towns will once again use these words. 
The Lord bless you, O righteous dwelling, O sacred mountain. It's interesting. You have to ask yourself, which mountain is he referring to? You're going to find out that the overwhelming weight in the scripture refers to one mountain, Jerusalem's elevations as the sacred mountain. But I'll show that to you later. People will live together in Judah and all of its towns. Farmers and those who move about with their tent, with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. He is the God of Israel. He calls Judah and its towns a sacred mountain. The plan is that the specific people, the specific place, become his righteous dwelling. The blessing was found right there in verse 23. The Lord bless you, O righteous dwelling. Israel, and specifically Judah, have to become a righteous dwelling. Verse 26. At this I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been pleasant to me. Why was that sleep pleasant to Jeremiah? It was pleasant to Jeremiah because at his point in history, it looked like Jerusalem was cursed, not blessed. It looked like his people were destroyed, not put together. It looked like the plan had failed and the promises were worthless. And he just received word from the Lord. It will still take place with the same people in the same place and the same plan. So he awakes and he says it's pleasant. Verse 27, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the house of or the family of or the sons of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of men and animals. Notice the specificity of the people. It is the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow and to destroy and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build. And to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and their children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. Here comes the part that you really want to focus in on. The time is coming, verse 31, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Somebody say new covenant. covenant. How many of you love the new covenant? With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The new covenant was not made with you. The new covenant was not made with North Americans, South Americans, Central Americans. it, It was not made with Canadians. It was not made with you. There is one people group on the planet that God said salvation would come through. They would birth it for the entire world. It would happen in a specific place, a specific people, a specific place. And it would be a specific plan. Instead of new, you could think of another. This new covenant does not replace any other covenant. Nothing in the Bible abrogates what goes before it. You're in the wrong religion. That's Islam. Islam has got a capricious devil for a God and what he says on one day can replace what he says on another day. And a pedophile imam can make it so because he wants it to be so. Our God is altogether trustworthy. Verse 32. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with house of Israel 
After that time, declares the Lord. Now, here's the thing. This next phrase, I'm not dissecting it. I am connecting it. Somebody say connecting. We have been talking about the God of Israel speaking to the, to the Israelites. By an Israelite prophet to an Israelite nation. I will put my law in. I will put my law in. What is the antecedent to the pronoun there? Physical descendants of Israel in the land of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you hear it? There, 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 they. The antecedent to these pronouns is always Israel in the specific land, the specific people. They will be beneficiaries of the specific plan. Notice what the result of that happening is. Because there is no way to interpret this out of your new covenant fulfillment theology. I want you to catch this. Everybody in the room. There is no break here. Verse 34. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or will a man his brother saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me. Now, if the antecedent to the pronoun has been Israel and every other case, what do you think they here means? Until all of Israel knows him, the newer covenant is not complete. Are you hearing me? You thought you were the end and the goal of the covenant. You are not. You are a part of the broad promise. The narrow promise is Israel. And if he doesn't do it for the narrow, then you have no hope in the broad. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness. See, the new covenant is for Israel, with Israel. The new covenant, which I could call another covenant, is one more restatement of every foundational truth you've already learned. It is the story building and covenants fitting on top of one another and within each other, but never replacing each other. God did not suddenly become discouraged with Israel and decide to focus on Latvians or Slovakians. He didn't at some point just go, you know, I'm done with the Middle East. Let's try uh, East Europe. It didn't work that way because he's not the kind of guy that would lay a foundation and then be unable to build on it and then suffer ridicule from the whole world. If you believe something other than that, if it's working in your life in some other way, are you opening up God to ridicule? For I will forgive their wickedness. I maintain before you today that until every Israelite knows him with no need of being taught or teaching their neighbor until every Israelite has their wickedness forgiven, then Jeremiah's words cannot be complete. No amount of gerrymandering can turn all of Israel into a tiny minuscule fraction. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Let me just ask the question. If an Israeli sins today, does God remember it? The answer is, of course, yes. Then Jeremiah's words still stand and need to be completed. They are not yet completed. 
This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day and decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is His name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. Even when the globe, when the United Nation doesn't recognize them, God does. They never ceased to be. That's an important concept, and he continually calls them the descendants of Israel, meaning the sons of a very physical, very present line that can be traced through genealogy. This is not some spiritual bastardization that you're hearing all around you. You loving Jesus does not make you an Israelite. Any more than I love Serbia. I especially love, I like some of the drink and food in Serbia. But I'm not Serbian, no matter how much I like it, no matter how much I appreciate it. I think Romania has the best slogan on the planet. Sometimes a kick in the butt is a step forward. But even though I admire that slogan, I'm not Romanian. All attempts to go take a DNA test and all of a sudden you become an Israelite. If you were not born from an Israelite womb, were not raised as an Israelite, then let's just be honest, you're not an Israelite. Some years ago, a gentleman in another church got offended with me because I used the word Mexican. And he said that that offended him because he was Mexican. He uh, he had not been in Mexico in 20-something years. I am there every single month uh, caring for the poor, preaching the gospel, and building houses. You know what my response to him caringly was? Shut up, you're immature. You desiring something does not make it so. You are not the specific people that God promised to save. You do not live in the specific place that God promised to do this. And you are not the plan of God. You are actually a mysterious mystery in the plan of God. (laughs) I'd like to show you a slide just to help you as we move forward. All of mankind in Genesis 3 funnels all the way down through Shem, Abram, Jacob, Judah, David, Solomon to Jesus. But it must result in Israel's salvation because that is what this story has always been about. Go with me to Psalm 48. I was sitting in the Jewish quarter in front of a giant menorah outside of a synagogue watching Jewish children play and Pastor Ezekiel Lamb beginning to get emotional, recognizing for the first time in his life that this is fulfilled prophecy, that this is really what the Bible story is about, is this people in this land with the hope of salvation that will be realized no matter how impossible it looks today. And I opened my Bible and discovered Psalm 48. 48 verse 1, great is Yahweh and most worthy of praise in the city of our God. Who is our? Israel. In the city of Israel's God, his holy mountain. God is great. He's worthy of praise in the city of God, his holy mountain. It is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of holy Of the whole earth. We cannot be talking about something celestial here. Because it's the joy of the whole earth. It's on the earth and it's the joy of the earth. 
Like the utmost heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. What conclusion can you come to other than Jerusalem is God's city? That Jerusalem is the mountain of God? You really can't. In fact, I want to show you what this says in Hebrew. The Lord is great and very much praised in the city of our God, the mount of his sanctuary. In the city of our God. This city is called Zion in the very next verse. I'm going to show you throughout the Bible that every time you see the city of God or Jerusalem or New Jerusalem, this is the specific place that God is always referring to. New Jerusalem is not some other place. It's the same place renovated from heaven. Just like Charles Brown became a new creation so many years ago, but he's still Charles Brown. What was different? The rule of heaven became absolute in his life. Well, when that happens with Jerusalem, we'll see salvation in a whole nother way. Look at verse 3. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. God is in the citadels of Jerusalem. God is the fortress of Jerusalem. We go through many verses where kings are attacking and God makes her secure. But look at verse 12 because this is what happened to me. Walk about Zion. Zion is another word for Jerusalem. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Count her towers. Consider well her ramparts. View her citadels that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God, for this God, our God, forever and ever. This God is our God. For how long? Forever and ever. The God who dwells in Jerusalem is the God of the people of Israel forever and ever and ever. Now you're sitting here going, well, I knew he was the God of Israel. Did you? Is he their God first or your God first? See, he's their God first, but I bet you don't think about it that way on a regular basis. See, if God's word is to be trusted then the foundation that he lays in Genesis must be true in Revelation. And you cannot become the center of God's plan in the last chapter of the book because you weren't the center of his plan in the first. That would be building on a different foundation. Turn with me to Psalm 87. This is one of those messages I hope you will go back to many times. And we're just about to enter the Newer Testament. I promised it in Jeremiah 31 and we're still waiting. But the point of Jeremiah 31 is we're still waiting. It's not complete. It's not done. Psalm 87. He has set his foundation on the holy mountain. Hey, where was the holy mountain? Jerusalem. He has set his foundation on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, O city of God. Do you hear that at no point in the law, prophets, or writings has God abandoned Jerusalem? He disciplined them. But the place doesn't change. The people doesn't change. And the plan doesn't change. He set his foundation on the holy mountain. He loves the gates of Zion. Okay? That has got to be a part of our lives. He goes on to say that people from Egypt, people from Tyre, people from all over the place will be counted as if they were born in Zion. You can go back and read that. That's Psalm 87. Notice something. He doesn't say they were born in Zion. He says, 
It's as if they were born in Zion. I'll put them in the rolls. Do you know what that's hinting at? Zion is always the foundation. His people are always the foundation, but he would include you in their building. That's foreseen. It was foreseen, but listen, when we say include you in their building, I'm trying to think of the best way to explain that to you. Uh, how about this? In Exodus twelve thirty eight, it says many other nations went up with them also. Do y'all recognize that? Yes. Exodus 12 is the subject of the Passover. Many other nations went to the mountain of God with them. Y'all recognize that? That word, many other nation, is goyim. It's Gentiles. Gentiles went with Jews also up to the mountain. So then does it become the story of the Gentile Passover and we forget about Israel? Whose Passover was it? The fact that Gentiles went with them, does that change the story? Is it now the story of our enslavement, the story of our freedom, the story of our being released by the blood of the Lamb, the story of our victory over Egypt? It's Israel's story. The fact that we got to go with them does not change the story. But somehow or another, when we switch to the topic of salvation, this becomes our story and maybe, you know, a few of them get saved too. You destroy most of the Bible with that kind of thought. And it has worse ramifications in your own life. Israel, Jerusalem, Zion, the people, the place, the plan, are the bedrock and foundation of the Bible story. They are the point, the cornerstone, and they will become the capstone. Not only does the Newer Testament affirm this, it emphatically emphasizes it. Are you ready for the Newer Testament? Let's go to Mark 12. Now, all around the world, you ask somebody, hey, what is the greatest commandment? The answer is wrong 100% of the time, including when I ask you. We give an abbreviated answer. I want to start a few lines before that. Mark 12, 26. Now about the dead rising. Why are we even talking about the dead rising? Because that's the specific plan given to the specific people in a specific place. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You've read that for years, but you never thought about it. What do you mean, I am? Say, well, Jesus goes on to say, he's not the God of the dead, but the living. So, So that must be it. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried in a specific place in Israel in the hope of the resurrection. God does not view their life as over at all. They are the specific people, they're in the specific place, and they're waiting for the culmination of the plan. See, to him, we're still in the midst of the same plan that he announced in Genesis 3. Nothing has changed. To us, it's like, well, they had their life and now it's over, and, you know, maybe they're sitting on a white cloud with a fat, naked baby playing a harp, you know? That came from medieval homosexual Catholic artists. That's where that came from. It's not found in the Bible. It's, it's nowhere relating to the Bible story. Misunderstanding the plan of God is the resurrection of dead initiated in Israel causes us to, how Jesus say it? You are badly mistaken. If you've been waiting your whole life to just die and go to heaven, I'm not going to argue with you about whether or not that's true. I'm going to tell you it's never been the point of the Bible. Amen. Nowhere is it the point of the Bible. If you believed at a crusade and raised a pinky and signed a card so that you could believe on Jesus and go to heaven, you've missed the entire story. You've missed it all. The author introduced a specific people group. 
he introduced a specific location and he enumerated the plan and the plan was the resurrection of the dead. And that is the foundation that everything else has to be built on. We don't have the right to change it. The specific plans, the resurrection. Look at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given a good answer, he asked him of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, if you're not staring at the scripture right now, and I say, hey, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Tell me the truth. You are going to answer to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself, aren't you? Yes. That's, that's how every time I've ever asked the question, it got answered. Notice that that is not what Jesus says here. And it's not because Mark is contradicting the other Gospels. It's because the other Gospels are taking it for granted that you know this already and you don't. How does Jesus answer? When asked this question, Jesus in verse 29 says, The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel. See, nothing has changed. They are still the object of his affection. They are still the place in which everything is going to happen. They are still the pinnacle fulcrum of his plan. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We've moved from the specific plan and the mention of the resurrection of the dead to the specific people in Hear, O Israel. Then he goes on to say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. If you move down, you hear that Jesus answers this guy in verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He's speaking to an Israeli. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked How is it that the teachers of the law say that Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be a son? We read this and we see it quoted. Psalm 110 is quoted all over the Bible. It's quoted more in the New Testament than any other psalm. And you haven't asked the question. Where is he standing in Israel? Where was David King in Israel? Where is the crowd standing in Israel? Aside from him hinting at being more than a man, being the very son of God, he's affirming that the plan still takes place in Israel. He starts off talking about the resurrection of the dead. He moves then to address the specific people. Hear, O Israel. And then he starts talking about his attributes as the son of God and the son of David. In other words, I am a part of the family line that this has been promised to from the beginning. Jesus is the foundation and he's the one only in as much as he is the personification of Israel. See, he is the king of Israel. People will say that America wants a ban on Muslim countries. The truth is, is we have a president who acts on behalf of America and he wants a ban on Muslim countries. Do you understand what I'm saying? The leader of the nation represents the whole nation. Jesus is only the foundation and the capstone in the sense that he is the leader of the nation that is the foundation and the capstone. He's the king of the Jews. Isn't that what they hung above his head when he was dying? 
It doesn't matter what book of the Bible that we look at Israel in, Jerusalem in, Zion in. It's the center of the book. It is the object of reference, the foundational stone of revelation from God. I want you to see this in the last book of the Bible, and we will fly through these because there's some other things I want to get to. Revelation, we hear, is all about the church. And some would say the church has been raptured out, and these kind of errors come from not understanding the Scripture. Israel was never raptured out of any problem. That's not how God does things. He puts... His people in unimaginable situations and they shine for his glory and he saves them even if he has to resurrect them to do it. How many of you have been hoping to get raptured from some problem in your life? Because wanting to be raptured from responsibility is not God's plan. His plan for you is to have his character developed in you until you become a prince with God. And he teaches us through that through his People, the struggle of Israel historically, the struggle of Israel in the land, their victories when outnumbered in ancient times and modern times, the war of liberation, the 67 war, Yom Kippur war. These are all teaching us something. You're supposed to walk through the ramparts of the city of Jerusalem and consider what God does when he's with a people. And it was a mystery that he could be with you, too. Him being with you does not mean he's not with them. They are still the point. In Revelation 7, 4, do you see the word from all the tribes? From all the tribes, there was a group numbered. I want you to understand that in the book of Revelation, he's still referring to them by their family descent. There was a multitude in front of his throne that nobody could count, but he counted the ones that came from Israel. Why? Because they have always been what the plan is about. Now, it's not everyone from Israel. These are the ones that had never slept with a woman and a lie is not on their mouth. Can you imagine there being 144,000 young men that had never touched a woman and had not lied? Man, you can go to seventh grade and can't find that. I'm just telling you the truth. He is promising you at the end of the book that what he said at the beginning of the book is true. That's what he's promising you. In Revelation 21, verse 13, You can just fly through these with me, Wade. Names of the 12 tribes. Do you see that? We're written the names of the 12 tribes. The city has the names of the 12 tribes on it. Why would the city have the names of the 12 tribes? Because the city is Jerusalem. And the people are the inhabitants of Jerusalem. How about Revelation 3.12? This confirms to us, look right in the middle of that slide. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city. Of my God. Are you really going to get to the 66th book and think we're talking about some city other than the same city that it's always been? Jerusalem. How about Revelation 11 verse 2? When these guys are slain in the streets to the Gentiles, they will trample on the holy city. I've heard many Bible expositors say that Revelation calls Jerusalem Sodom and Gomorrah. And it does. It says figuratively this is Sodom and Gomorrah because of wickedness that had happened there. In the very same chapter, you know what it calls it? The holy city. The Bible story is about Israel going from something that is devastated to something that is holy. That's what the Bible is about. You're supposed to learn from that. That he takes you from devastation to holiness. That he never gives up on you. That he never replaces you. That he loves to keep covenants. Okay, how how, we can do these all day, but I picked seven from Revelation. Revelation 20 and verse 9. Right in the center of the slide. God's people, the city... He loves. Who do you think that is? God's people in the city that he loves. 
Revelation 21, 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. The new Jerusalem is not some other planet. The new Jerusalem is the same Jerusalem there's always been, redefined by heaven as new. The same way you're the same person you've always been, but the Bible calls you a new creature. Are you hearing me? Okay. Now, have we laid kind of a foundation here? Revelation 22 refers to the throne of God and the city of God, still Jerusalem. I want to talk to you about the cornerstone and the capstone as we try to start to wind this down some. Cornerstone and capstone. A cornerstone is a reference point for all other stones. It's a foundational stone. You've known that. You've heard sermons on it. Everything else is measured against it as square. Everything else will look like it looks. God laid the cornerstone in the first 12 chapters of the Bible. It has never changed. Everything else must be square to it. The capstone is the last stone that is laid. It is still in perfect symmetry to the first stone laid, the cornerstone. The capstone cannot be out of square with the cornerstone. In other words, that's a way of saying that this plan starts with Israel and it must finish with Israel. Go with me to Ephesians 2, verse 19. Judah's there. We're an hour and 24 minutes in. Some of the guests might be regretting you picked this place. Ask yourself, when's the last time you heard this preached? Ephesians 2.19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. With Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. When we read that, you need to understand something. God's people are the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the personification of all of the people. He is their king. He's the best Jew of all Jews. He's the highest Israelite of all Israelites. He is the ultimate. It is their house, their cornerstone, their salvation. And you have become a part of it. Okay? You can't come to another conclusion if you start at the correct end of the Bible. It's only when you start at the wrong end of the Bible that you come to a different conclusion. When the scripture refers to Jesus as the foundation, cornerstone, or capstone, it's because he's the personification of Israel as their king. The beginning is a promise to Israel, and the end is the promise to Israel fulfilled. What were the conditions of Jeremiah 31? They must all know him. And they must all be forgiven. Has that occurred? No. Then the new covenant has not reached its zenith yet. When God laid the foundation, did he have the chance? Did he have the opportunity? Does he have the resources to complete it? See, he will complete what he has started to build. Our problem is we've become faithless when we look and we see such rejection. When we see so far the distance between where they will be and where they are. Faithless theologians for over 1,800 years have written Israel off, and it's produced a church that is no more focused on what God is focused on than a man is focused on the moon. That is a problem. 
Because what it teaches you to do in your life is anytime God has said something, but it looks impossible, you reinterpret it when you need to resurrect it. See, that, that's, that's a big issue. So we have a group of people that are not hoping for what God is hoping for, that see themselves as the center of everything. And what's worse is anytime things get tough, they just reinterpret what God's already said. I'm not describing millennials. I'm describing Christians. That's a problem. Exodus 12, 38 did not redefine the Exodus story. You being saved with Israel does not change the fact that Israel is the star of salvation. Amen. Let's move to Romans 11 and verse 15. See if you can strain at what the pashat of this verse is. For their rejection, there is Israel, brought reconciliation to the world, being the Gentile world, What will their acceptance be except life from the dead? Go backwards to that slide, Pastor Wade. It's the funnel. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be? See, all mankind funnels down through Shem. Shem funnels through Abraham. Abraham through Jacob. Jacob through Judah. Judah through David. David through Solomon. All the way to Jesus. And in Jesus, the whole world gets offered salvation. But the resurrection of the dead will only happen when Israel receives Christ. Are you following me? Paul says it. He says it right there in Romans eleven fifteen through 16. By the way, in Romans eleven twenty six, he says all Israel will be saved. He didn't make it up. Zechariah said it. Do you think that Paul didn't understand or do you think Paul understood the narrative? And we have looked at select statements that Paul has made and we've ignored the whole story. See, we need to adjust. We need to shim our foundation because the building's crooked. The window's hung, but it's not in straight. The motor is there, but there's a vibration and it's about to, to, to come apart. This is a problem. Now ask yourself this. If this does not sit well with you, that's okay. We want to challenge you. Why did God bring you here? I believe... That he brought you here to expose you to this so that you can adjust your foundation. If you believe that you were brought here to adjust our foundation, I think you need to look at your life with sober judgment. Because every tree is known by its fruit. I don't believe that this revelation has been growing in the pastors and the elders from 2004. I, I was answering these questions before you had these questions. God has put us in a situation where this has become paramount to us. Ask, why is that happening? It's because it's germane to your life. It's because it's pertinent to your life. You cannot worship the God of Israel who has a focused point of the salvation of Israel, be filled with the spirit of the God of Israel and not care about what he cares about. And if you're in the camp that thinks that Israel is the same as every other nation because in Christ we're all the same, you haven't been listening for the last hour and a half. That is not what the promise was. The promise was not that we all become so homogenous that you can't tell the difference between any of us. That was not the promise. And all Israel has not yet been saved. And if you think the resurrection of the dead has occurred, then you need to ask yourself why you're sore when you work on a Ford all day long. Acts 3 is among our last scriptures. If you don't mind, please go with me to Acts 3. If you do mind, please go with me to Acts 3. 
Yeah, say Israel when you get there. Israel. Say Prince with God if you love God's people. Prince with God. Acts 3.12 When Peter saw this, he said to them, What did he say? Men of Israel. When Peter saw this, he said, men of Israel. Peter is preaching to men of Israel. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. See, in Christ, we didn't all become so homogenous that he just says God. He leaves him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because that's the foundation of the promise. Look at verse 19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Wasn't that the promise of Jeremiah? But it hasn't happened yet. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he... Oh, come on. What's it say? And that he, verse 20. Do you mean until Israel repents, we can't see the second coming of Jesus? Isn't that what it says? Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that He may send the Christ who has been appointed for who? You. You is Israel. See, you read Acts. You read Acts 3. That's not new to you. Christ was appointed for Israel, not just in His first coming. In his second coming, in his second coming will not occur until Israel repents. Isn't that what Romans eleven fifteen just said? So while we're waiting for all kind of things, and God bless you if you're waiting on the rapture, I can explain it to you if you want, perhaps over coffee. You buy the coffee, I will tell you about it. The goal and plan of God is the resurrection of Israel, not the rapture of anyone. And he hasn't raptured them from the Holocaust. He didn't rapture them from the expulsion from Spain. He didn't, he didn't uh, rapture them from the pogroms. He, he's never raptured them before. You know who really wants to be raptured? Gentiles that do not understand the plan of God. Christ is appointed for Israel and he will not return until Israel repents. Look at verse 21. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore Everything. When you read that, you think, wow, he's going to restore the whole world. He is, but that's not what they're thinking about. Who's he preaching to? Men of Israel. So he's addressing the very question that he asked at the beginning of Acts. When are you going to restore Israel? (laughs) He's telling them he'll restore Israel when Israel repents. Okay. Verse 22. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up fewer prophet like me from among your own people. See, He had to be sent to them first, which is what verse 26 says. Let's walk through these funnels, okay? I don't want to lose you here. If you have to stand up and shake yourself off, do it. All mankind. That is, somebody's going to come from a woman who's going to crush the devil. Oh, wait. Out of all mankind, the promise narrows to Shem. Out of all Shem's offspring, which are many peoples on the planet, the promise narrows to Abraham. After Abraham's offspring begin to grow, the promise narrows to Jacob. When Jacob's offspring begin to grow and and span out to the 12 tribes, then it narrows to Judah. When Judah grows to be a nation, it narrows to David. When David has many sons, it narrows to Solomon. When Solomon raises up many kings after him, we point to the one true king, Jesus. Now it has spread out to all believers on the earth, but it must narrow 
to Israel. And if Israel is not saved, then all of the believers who have trusted in the same hope cannot be saved. How important is it that Israel be saved? Of all missions in the world, of all prayer in the world, is there anything more important than praying for Israel? To think that they're the same as every other nation is to fundamentally misunderstand the entire point of the Bible. They are not the same as every other nation. They're the one people on the planet that are called God's chosen. And because they are God's chosen, they have suffered like no other group of people on the planet. And it is spitting in their face to think that you are their equal because you have not walked in their shoes. You have equal value before God, but you have not suffered equally as a people. You talk about being the underdog. You talk about prejudice. You think in some way that you've been victimized because of the color of your hair or skin or your ethnic origin. Go walk with me through Yad Vashem. You'll be so ashamed that you thought like that and talk like that, you won't know what to say. The people of God have been hunted and persecuted all over, even when they weren't doing well with God, just because of who they descended from. The devil understood the promise better than the theologian. When you think of all of that expansion and contraction, it's hard not to think of this slide. There are a lot of babies in our church, a few that are going to be born here really soon. Amen, Joyce? It turns out... That the widening of the promise and the narrowing of the promise, the widening of the promise and the narrowing of the promise is like the earth trying to give birth to something. The earth is trying to give birth to the very sons of God. How about this? The crowning achievement (laughs) is when Israel is saved. You say, well, hey, many Israelites have been saved through the century, not nearly enough because it doesn't reach all nations. I mean, it doesn't reach the whole nation. It also, we have not seen a national repentance where God turns godlessness away from Jacob and restores them. We've not seen that. Say, well, it was all fulfilled in Jesus. You don't understand the story. For you, you reached fulfillment in Jesus. But the plan of God does not begin and end with you. You are a small part that didn't even get an asterisk mention. I'm faced with the dilemma that I have three more sermons that I'd like to preach. And instead, instead, I neither want to rob you nor do I want um, to so saturate you that you do not get what you should get. So let me do it this way. Turn with me to Romans 8, 22. Remembering that in Genesis 3.15, the promise was given to the woman, your pains are going to be greatly increased in childbirth. This process of birthing salvation has not been an easy one. It's been a very difficult one. And that was true for Eve. It's been true for every woman since. But it's also especially true for Mother Israel trying to birth salvation because it's awkward for Father Jacob to birth salvation. In Isaiah 26, they literally say, you know, we writhed in pain and... And we gave birth to the wind. We did not bring salvation to the world. Those are expansions and contractions. That's when their destiny looked clear. And other times it looked like it was gone. In Micah 5, everybody loves to notice that 
it mentions Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And we see Jesus being born in Bethlehem as a fulfillment. But it also promises that not only would he be ruler over Israel, but in the third verse, it says that all of his brothers would return to join him. That he would stand and shepherd one flock on the hills of Israel. See, that hasn't happened. His brothers haven't come to join him. You can do that all over the place. But instead, I thought that what we would do is start in Romans 8.22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present. What we're seeing all around the world, what we have been seeing for centuries, are the expansion of God's people and the contraction of God's people. Every time Israel reaches a certain number on the earth, nations throw them out, they kill them. It's, it's, it's the saddest thing you've ever seen. There is no major world power that has not systematically persecuted the Jew. Expansion, contraction. When it looks like they're going to cease as a people, God always intervenes. They always bounce back. I'm not speaking about ancient history. I'm speaking about modern history right now. Look at Romans 8, 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. When we read that, we say, hey, he's talking about us. Have you read the context of Romans? The rest of Romans 8 is not about you. The rest of Romans 9 is not about you. Neither is Romans 10, neither is Romans 11. It's only about you in the extent it's telling you how to relate to the natural branch and you're an unnatural branch. It's telling you not to be arrogant and think it's all about you. That it's actually about them. So when we're talking about the creation is waiting eagerly for the sons of God to be revealed, I love that we can see you're a son of God, but that's not what the creation is waiting for because it's not what the creation was promised. The creation was promised that one specific people group in one specific place would emerge from the earth like being born into immortality. And it hasn't happened yet. The resurrection of the dead will not occur until all of Israel is saved. The plan of God involves saving that nation. Romans 8.23 is worth mentioning. Not only so, but we, uh, but we ourselves who are, have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await for our adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. See, the hope that we are all saved in started with the hope of Israel, the hope of the resurrection. Now, have you ever read Matthew 24? Matthew 24, we see wars, we see rumors of wars, we see so many things. In the 8th verse, he says, you know what those are? Those are birth pains. What do you mean they're birth pains? The earth is expanding and contracting while Israel is laboring to produce salvation. How do we have those as birth pains if it's all already done? It's not done. Getting pregnant is not the same as delivering a baby. And the difficulty that you experience when things look hopeless and you don't think you're going to make it. In fact, every labor has this transition period where... You're pretty sure you're going to die. I mean, I've watched it now several times. And right at that moment, you experience life. You know, Jesus spoke to his disciples about that. And we think he's talking about us and he's speaking about Israel. This is our last scripture. Can you go with me to your last scripture? It's John 16 and verse 20. I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Who is the you there? 
They're Israelite apostles. But they're Israelites. Don't forget that. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. We are promised grief for Israel, followed by joy for Israel. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that the child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. He's saying that the time of labor is between his comings. He will not return again until Israel repents. But when the whole nation has turned to repent and he comes, it will be a time of joy. You know why? Salvation will have been born to the world. Okay. Say, well, Eric, I really appreciate that. It's good for the overview of Israeli history. Uh, You preached it in a couple hours. That um, is not often done today. Why is that important? The crowning achievement of God, the capstone that is on top of the foundation is that all of Israel will be saved. If you no longer believe that's possible or have reinterpreted it in some way, what will that do to you with your impossible hopes and dreams? If God doesn't do what he said for them, why would you think he'll do it for you? Israel needs to be resurrected, not reinterpreted. I want to say that again for you, and I would like you to fix that in your mind. Israel needs to be resurrected, not reinterpreted. Islam believes that they're the true followers of God and that the Jews lied and changed the book. Mormons believe that they are actually... Israelites. Jehovah's Witness think they're the only true Israelites. Do you have more in common with those groups than you do the actual Bible story? You are not Israel. The salvation of the world begins and ends with Israel. It is the foundation and it is the capstone, the cornerstone and the capstone. He makes them his crowning achievement. Well, if that's true about Israel, we have to ask a question about us. Have you substituted reinterpretation for resurrection in the difficult things in your life? Well, I know God told me that I'm going to have a child. I know that God told me that I'm going to have a good job. I know that God told me this. But now that it's difficult, you are reinterpreting everything about it. We'd like to ask you a very personal question. Have you misunderstood the word and you have just been too prideful to consider that you may be wrong? It is very, very hard to learn while you're teaching. I'm just going to tell you something. We let so many people teach in this church. We really do. We, we want to hear from everyone. And when you've received a revelation that came from God and not from men, man, do we want to hear it. And other men of God will attest to it. You know what I'm not interested in at all? What you were able to watch on YouTube. What you were able to learn from other men. God didn't bring you here for that. He brought you here to learn what God has revealed to us. And to share with us what God revealed to you. Not what somebody else taught you. Are you hearing me? I'm not discounting teaching. I'm telling you that walking in... And refusing to even consider this paradigm 
that God has founded here makes you unteachable. And you need to have a teachable heart and a teachable spirit. Because it has more to do with your personal life than you're aware of. Somebody ought not have to tell you something 20 times before you can actually consider it. They ought not see you tune them out while you're telling them. You were brought here to be taught by this house. We've demonstrated a capacity to listen. We've demonstrated a capacity to be taught by our students. But understand that's not the primary role of a student. This is a good time for us to make adjustments. The word of prophecy today was an interesting one. An unexpected one. It came forward in a tongue which kind of forces an interpretation. It's the way the scripture says it must be done. So we seek the face of God in that moment with all of the pressure. Lord, what do you want to say? And I was surprised at what came out. He will humble those that have exalted themselves. But if you will humble yourself, he will put his hand on you and exalt you. Nothing could be more insulting than realizing that you've misread the Bible your entire life. And nothing's more important than that acknowledgement. Nothing is. Because when we make those adjustments... There's no telling what he'll do with us. I'm going to turn it over to my brother who is called to this people. We are soon going to move into worship. And I'm just asking you in these last few minutes to give your full attention and heart to him. I believe that I went to Israel seven times to be able to preach this message. It was at a kind of a cost, a little bit of a sacrifice. And I, and I want you to, to hear it and get it. Can you guys give me a couple more minutes of your time? I bet you think that I'm going to stand up here and talk to you about how we can bless Israel further or how we can better understand Israel. I'm not. I'm going to talk about us right now. See, I think that we say and we believe the things we do about Israel because we say and believe the things we do about the God of Israel. That we act the way we do about the God of Israel. And it's a problem that we have with God. Job 38, verse 1, says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. See, Job's problem is the same problem that we have. In suffering, we are inclined to darken God's counsel. In suffering, we are inclined to think differently of God than what His Word says and what He promised about Him. We are more inclined to charge God with error than we are to look at our own ways and follow through with what He has already said. That is a word for all of us. It's a word for myself. We need to brace ourselves this morning. And we need to answer God's questions. We need to deal with God in this place. In Job 40... Verses 1 through 2, the Lord says to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. 
Will you contend with God this morning? Will you continue to go your own way time and time again when he has shown you what his good and faithful promises are for you? See, when trial comes, our thoughts, our actions, our words, how many of those things charge God with error when we should believe in faith? You see, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised to him. Are you fully persuaded of what God has spoken to you this morning? By faith, Abraham was enabled to become a father because he considered God faithful who made the promise. Are you considering God faithful this morning? Are you inclined to charge God with error? either by your actions, your words, or your thoughts. You see, Abraham did not reinterpret God to make him fit into a situation. He did not reinterpret the word. He did not reinterpret the promise. And he did not even reinterpret his own condition. He considered the fact that his body was as good as dead, and he still did not waver in unbelief. So as a church, God is dealing with us about the healing He's promised, about the marriages that He's promised us, about the children He's promised us, about the callings He's given us, and about the salvation of lost loved ones. Because our faith needs to rise in this place. We need to stop dwelling in the place where we are charging God with error, where we are looking at Him and saying, it is your fault that this hasn't happened. And we need to let our faith rise this morning. So I'm going to pray. Let's deal with God. Let's brace ourselves like men and women of God should. And let's answer him as he calls out to us in a storm. You ready to get in God's presence? Then stand with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we cry out, holy is your name. Lord, you are unchangeable. You do not change for any man. You do not change for any woman. You do not back off of your word or your promises, not for a second, mighty God. Lord, we come to you today and we say we believe that your promises are yes and amen. Lord, we say that we believe in your resurrection. Lord, that we believe in the resurrection of your promises in our lives, mighty God. Lord, we do not let them fall by the wayside, but we come to you for renewal of faith this morning. We come to you for renewal of resurrection. In Jesus' name.